John chapter 6. I, I, just, I find this chapter just incredible um, in, in so many different ways. It begins with, with Jesus feeding the 5,000. He's, he's over on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He, he feeds the 5,000, and they are so impressed with him, they think, well, this must be the prophet, uh, referring to the prophet Deuteronomy 18, I believe. And they want to make him king. He, uh, it's interesting because they want to make him king. They want to do the right thing at the wrong time. I think that's fascinating because I think, I think we, need, we need to really grab a hold of our, our sense of timing. But they want to do the, make, do the right thing for the, uh, at the wrong time. He basically gets away from them. He goes up into the mountains on the east side of the, of the lake. Sends his disciples back over to the west side. And the other gospels tell us he's watching them from the shore. It's nighttime. And what does he do next? He walks on the water. And comes out and he... John doesn't talk about it, but talks about Peter walking on the water. Peter falls. Jesus picks him up to get back in the boat. Immediately, they're on the other side of the lake. And so, we're picking up the story there in verse 22. It says, on the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea. Now, that other side would refer to the east side, uh, which is a mixture of Jew and Gentile territory. They were standing on the other side of the sea and they saw that there was no other boat there except for one which the disciples had entered. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, which is on the west side, near the place where they ate after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got in their boats and they came to Capernaum, or Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and he said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word and we consider that which you inspired the Apostle John to write here. Help us to glean from this, to learn from this, and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we'd be transformed as we just consider the wonderful words of life that you've set before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 
So this, this particular passage begins with the, the crowds. They're looking for Jesus. They realize that the, the disciples have gone back over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, the way this is constructed, it, it sounds like some of the people were fed and then they immediately got back in their boats, head back over to the west side and started telling people what happened on the east side of the, of the sea. And it sounds like there were even more people now heading out toward the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee looking for a meal. And so it, it almost becomes this well's where is Waldo type of environment? You know, they're looking for Jesus. They don't know where he is. Not finding him on the east side, they go back to the west side, and they finally find him. What I find interesting is that in John, there are so many little things that John includes that I think that bears... Uh, us being able to pay attention to and to consider and, and, and to glean from. And when John is t kind of talking about this narrative, kind of explaining to us what's going on, he, he tells us uh, in verse 23 even, um, it, it said, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate after the Lord had given thanks. You see, that's... that's, that's um, Spoke to me. That word giving thanks is the word in the Greek, eucharisteo, from which some church get the word eucharist, by which they name taking communion. It literally refers to giving thanks. It's used 39 times in 38 verses in the New uh, King James Bible. Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, he says, giving thanks always for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I thought about that. I'm not going to touch, I'm, I'm almost tempted to camp out on this because I think this is really important. But do we give thanks to God for all things? There are certain things that, of course, the scripture tells us in the book of James, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights of whom there is no variance or shadow of turning, as in James 1. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, right? And so when I get a good and perfect gift, man, I'm thankful. I'm really thankful. Most of the time. There are times, especially in my youth, I would get so carried away with the gift, I would forget to give thanks, right? But hopefully I've grown up a little. But what about those things that God permits to enter into your life that he's using during the season of your life right now that he's using to conform you into the image of Christ. James also tells us, count it all joy, brethren, 
when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and when patience has its perfect work, you will be complete and lack nothing. You know, I, I, I don't like that. I'd rather just go to sleep, wake up the next day more holy, more sanctified, more purified, more illuminated, more Christian, right? But it, it doesn't work that way. You know, I was, I was thinking about this in, in heaven. And I don't think the scripture is completely clear on this. Your mileage may vary. It normally does, but that's okay. But in heaven, and, and the word tells us we will know as we are known, right? Is that going to happen instantaneously or is that a sanctification process as well? I, I don't know. I know we will be in new bodies. And you would think that we would have to have a soul and even mind equipped to handle those new bodies. It's like you don't give the keys of your brand new car to your five-year-old kid, right? But I wonder if we're still going to go through, I'm, go through a sanctification process. As I've said to you guys many times, I'm convinced there's going to be seminary in, in, in heaven, and I'm enrolling. I can't wait. I want to take more classes. I want to learn. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, that I may be conformed to his death, that I may obtain the resurrection of life. Mary read it to us this morning. Because the reality is, all this knowledge, all this teaching, all of that, that which we do, and the, these, this incredible collection of 66 books that we have been given have been given to us that we may know God. And therefore, in, in the realm of all of that, we have to learn to give thanks. Like maybe I will camp out on this this morning. I don't know. But we have to learn to give thanks. And I'm so glad that God is so gracious to us when he gives us things that we don't want and we tell him that. Because you know what we're really doing? We're really telling God that we really know better than he does. Which we all know. We all know that that is not true, right? God has never asked me for a consult on my life, and he never will. As the pastor, he's never asked me for a consult on your life. I mean, there are times I'm talking with people and, and, and I'm hearing their stories and I'm thinking, oh God, you better give me something because I have nothing to tell them. But Paul understood and he said, through many tribulations we enter into the kingdom of God. And so we give thanks. They go to the other side of the sea. That is, they go back to the west side. Sorry. Um, they go back to the west side and they find Jesus. And they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
And I find that fascinating on a lot of levels. Now, part of what I want to bring out here this morning is, is that our sense of belief, our faith, how we respond to the light, to the illumination, to the revelation that the Holy Spirit gives us will determine our own desires. I want to leave you with that and keep that with you for a second. I'll explain more as we unpack this passage. Because the thing is, when the Lord reveals things to you, my belief is we have a choice. We can say, that's nice. We can say, yeah, but not in my case. Or normally, we can admit that we don't totally understand what it is that we're hearing from the Lord. And yet I want to pursue it because my desire is to know him. What we are seeing here, and this will, will, will come to its fullness at the end of this chapter where it says the crowds no longer followed him. What we are seeing here is this progression. It goes all the way back really to John chapter 2 where it says that Jesus did many miracles and people believed in him, but he did not give himself to them because he knew what manner of person they were. They call him rabbi at this point. Well, just a couple of verses before they wanted to make him king, they referred to him as the prophet. Now he's a rabbi. He's been downgraded. You guys see that? He's no longer the prophet. That, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so due to time, I'm not going to backtrack into that. Look at Deuteronomy 18, that they, uh, uh, the Jews believed Deuteronomy 18 was the prophecy of the Messiah. They recognized Jesus as the prophet. They wanted to make him king. He takes off on them. He goes up into the hills, and now all of a sudden he's been downgraded to a rabbi. He's still pretty high in their thinking, but he's been downgraded. How did you get here? When did you get here? And in typical fashion in this particular gospel, Jesus is asked one question, and he answers it by referring to something else. John chapter 3, Nicodemus says to, comes to Jesus by night, and he says, he says we, we know, teacher, rabbi, we know that you are sent from God, because no one can do these things unless God is with him. And immediately, what does Jesus do? He tells them that unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He understands that the question is a hunger question. It is a desire question. It is this wanting to know something type of question. A pursuit of God. But often it is, I'm convinced, that we don't even know the questions that we really should be asking. And yet God hears the cry of our heart. I became a Christian when I was eight years old. 
20 years ago, right? Yeah. Gosh, anyway. I barely understood the Trinity, the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of Jesus, the role of the Father. I knew that Jesus loved me, this I know, because the Bible had told me so. And I pursued it. And if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Paul had it so correctly said when he said in this world, he refers to us, I think it's 1 Corinthians 13, that we see dimly but then face to face. So in this life, the only shot we get is a dim view of what it is that the Lord is leading us into. But Jesus does not address the immediate statement or, or the question, but, but he uses this to take that person, those people, into a much deeper level. We see this in John 1, John 2, John 3, and John 4. They want to know how we got there. And he wants to cut to the chase and address the issue is why are they, why are they going back and forth on the Sea of Galilee chasing after him? What are they looking for? To me, that's an incredible, an incredible question because, because it's, I think we have to apply that into our own lives because why, why do you and I follow Jesus? Now, Peter is going to answer that question at the end of this chapter, but we're not going to get there this morning, okay? We might get there next week. And Jesus basically lays it out there for him. He says, most assuredly, okay, the it, it, old King James, verily, verily. Uh, some other editions says, truly, truly. I have a new King James that I'm working from this morning, and it says, most assuredly. In other words, it, it's, it's known as a double amen. And in Hebrew culture, when something is repeated more than once in a sentence, it's given for a double emphasis or a greater emphasis. Like if I would say to you, wake up, wake up, right? <laughs> well, nobody's sleeping, but anyway. Uh, that, that might be able to get someone's attention a little bit better. But he says to them, I say to you, you seek me. Now, notice this. Don't let this escape your thought. Remember what I referred to back in John 2, that they believed in Jesus because of the signs, but he would not give himself to them because he knew what manner of person they were. Here in John 6, Jesus says to them, you seek after me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were, uh, and we're filled. They're no longer chasing after miracles. They want another meal. They have, in essence, stepped out of the spiritual pursuit of God 
as imperfect as it always is with each one of us. And if I can be a little sarcastic, they're pursuing Jesus because they want a happy meal. They want something to eat. They want to be fed. I call it the laundry list, which is a dumb name. But anyway, I, I think sometimes when we pray, our prayers are, are nothing more than treating Jesus like he's the grocery man. And we want him to do this and want him to do that and feed me, do this and make my life better. I think of certain areas in the world that the church is under heavy persecution. I've heard about in some of those areas, they pray for us. They intercede for us. They pray for us that we might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed unto his death that we might obtain the resurrection of life. find that fascinating that in the face of persecution I would refer you to Voice of the Martyrs I believe it's vom.com I'm sure you can find it but in the face of that persecution they have a heart for us the church in the United States of America And he tells them, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal upon him. I'm going to take the word, the, go, I'll go from the end of the verse and kind of go backwards a little bit. God the Father. Notice he doesn't just refer to him as the Father. He doesn't just refer to him as God. He refers to him as God the Father, recognizing who he is, one of the members of the Trinity, because he, in fact, is God the Son. And this word sealed is an interesting word. It refers to ownership. It also refers to identity. It refers to protection. Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Now, I'm thinking about when did this, when did this take place? Well, I, I think in eternity past, yes, but when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, you have the Holy Spirit, as Jesus comes out of the water, you have the Holy Spirit descending upon him as in the form of a dove, and you have the voice of the Father saying what? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Identified to the rest of the world. Chosen before the foundation of the world, okay, but identified to the world as now the Messiah has come into the world. John the Baptist understood this when he sees Jesus and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God, which I believe is a reference to the Passover Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's also a word that's used for when God seals his servants 
particularly 144,000 in the book of Revelation, but I don't have the time to jump into that. But he says, do not labor for food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life. This word is a is present tense verb in the Greek. It, it, it talks about this, this process or a state of being with no assessment of the action being completed. And it also, it, in, the, in the, gra- the grammar of this particular word, it, it really is talking about the, the person is, is doing something that it, their actions is, is affecting or having an effect upon themselves. We labor. We are fed, essentially. Does that sound like you can earn your salvation? Grammatically, it it can open that door. But then again, what does Jesus say here? But for the food which endures to return everlasting life, which the Son of Man will, what? Give you. See, we're saved by grace. Not of works. It is a gift of God, lest we should boast. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace. And we'll answer this a little, because the big question is, is what are we to labor for? What are the works of God? We'll answer this in just a moment. But, but we're, we're saved by grace. There are different views on this. But my view is, you have to receive the grace of God that is offered to you. Just like in the sanctification process, we, okay, we're saved by grace. All of a sudden, we have been, we become a new creation. Remember, we talked about this in the book of Romans. We are in a new status, a new status of person. We become this, this citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We are a new creation and then the sanctification process begins. I could have said we begin the sanctification process, but the reality is even in the process of sanctification where we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ and we participate in spirit, different spiritual disciplines so that we might grow, that transformation is not something that we do to ourselves. That transformation is something that the Holy Spirit does upon you. It is a continued act of grace. Now, if I don't read my Bible, if I don't pray, and I don't attend church, and I don't serve, I'll throw another one in for fun. And I don't fast, all right? Probably not going to grow a whole lot. As Paul says that in his flesh dwells no good thing. I don't make myself a better Christian. 
I avail myself to the Holy Spirit through the practicing of spiritual disciplines so that he might transform me. To be conformed, as Paul spoke in Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, okay, I present my body a living sacrifice. I show up. I present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable form of Worship, the word is service in most translations, but it can be translated worship. And be not conformed in this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. My mind doesn't get renewed if I do nothing but watch stupid television shows all day and all night and never saturate my mind with the word of God. What you put in will come out. But the work of transformation is not something I do. The work of transformation is something the Holy Spirit does upon us because it's, again, grace. Grace. If it were up to me, I never would have been saved. If it were up to me, I definitely would have never become a pastor. If it were up to me, I, I never would have grown in Christ. But... Because I believed, I saw the signs, I heard the voice of the still small voice in my heart, and I pursued. God gives the increase in our hearts. One waters, one plants, another waters, but who gives the increase? God gives the increase, always. So Paul understood this when he said, and Popeye quoted it later, but when he said, I am what I am, right? By the grace of God. Do not labor for the food which perishes. He's using a contrast here. You understand that, right? He's not telling you to not go to work and not go to raise. Or not, we don't go to raise anyway. Fred Myers or wherever to, to buy groceries. He's not, he's not saying that. But he's giving you a contrast. What is the focus of your life? Are you working toward things in the material? Or are you working toward things in the spiritual? I, I love the saying. I've shared it with you guys many times. Because the reality is what we do in that old Pentecostal saying is that we place ourselves under the spot where the glory comes out. We avail ourselves. I'm not here, Jesus, so that you give me. And I imagine the bread and the fish must have been fantastic. You ever thought about that? How good that probably was? It was probably fresh bread. It was probably a fresh catch. Pulled it off the smoker, you know? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I bet it was really good. Ever try a restaurant for the first time and it's really a good meal and you want to go back? Of course you do. It's a natural inclination. These people were just... 
responding to their natural inclination. But Jesus is calling them into something deeper. Because what you have here is is the, the signs, the miracles. Speak of a greater spiritual reality, which we will begin to look at next week when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. These people experienced the miracle, but they failed to recognize the sign in the miracle. Some of you got that. Some of you are looking at me like, they better explain that a little more. These were some people that were fed. They got the bread. They got the fish. That was great. But they failed to see the greater sign behind the physical miracle. Okay. I thought about this. When God opens the door for you, whatever that might be, the loan on the house goes through, the loan on the car goes, you know, whatever, okay, those type of things. Somebody offers you a place to live. You get a job. When God opens those doors for you, and we thank God for them, and yes, we should, but do we ever look for the greater sign behind the opening of the door that God is doing in our life? Do we look for the greater uh, message behind that which God is doing in our physical, material being? Is there a spiritual sign associated with that which God is doing in your life? Well, am I thinking on this? Yeah, God, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, right? And, and I am so, I'm thankful when he provides for us physically. I mean, for goodness sake, some of you know this about, about Mary and I, but, you know, we're different. But anyway, but, I mean, we pray over our dog's food when we feed her. Because we recognize God's provision. But in recognizing God's provision, do we, do we look for something else that God might be inviting us into to understand and to experience and to learn more about him? And when we understand and experience and learn more about him, do we not avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit to be conformed even greater into his image? Am I making any sense here this morning? Thank you. Because it's like what a friend of mine, he was a, he was a Calvary Chapel pastor in the Bay Area, so I had to pray for him a lot. But anyway, um, he said, Mike, we live spiritual lives. I remember when he said that to me, and I just thought, I wish I had said that first. Why didn't I think of that? Of course we do. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which enters to everlasting life because the Son of Man will give you because God has set his seal on you. And so they ask a legitimate question. Verse 28, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Good question, isn't it? 
Jesus answered, verse 29. I'm going to sew this up for you. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he had sent. Now, I'm going to sneak into next week's just for a moment. Therefore, they said to him, verse 30, what sign shall you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate man in the, in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat. Okay, we'll jump into more of that next week. They asked a perfectly legitimate question. And then they let their doubting get the best of them. Well, what are the works that we do to do the works of God? Jesus says, well, believe in him whom he has sent. And he says, what he's saying is believe in him. Okay, we'll believe in you. What are you going to do next? Now, they were not privy to the walking on the water. I understand that. Of course, they don't know how he got on the west side. He was on the east side last time they saw him, and they saw the disciples get into the boat, head back over the sea, and Jesus was not with them. So they, uh, there, there's a disconnect in their understanding, which is understandable, but he took five loaves and two pieces of fish and fed over 5,000 people. And they want another sign. See that? I empathize with these folks. So I don't want to be too critical, but I also really just want to hammer on them right now. But, but at the same time, I, 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 what do you do with your doubts? What do you do with your lack of faith? Now, you had to wonder what was going on in the mind of Peter. I'm going way ahead of you here, so follow me. Jesus dies, he resurrects, he appears to the disciples in the upper room. Peter eventually decides what? I'm going back to the Sea of Galilee, I'm going fishing. And Jesus follows them there and meets them there. Because I have to wonder if his leaving, and just like the two on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know what to do, so they leave town. They hear that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They don't know what else to do, so they leave town. So Jesus pursues after them. And I have to wonder in, in the apostles, uh, particularly in Peter, when they're back on the Sea of Galilee after seeing Jesus has risen from the dead, you have to wonder if there wasn't some type of holy agitation going on. You know what I mean by holy agitation? And if you don't, I will pray that God gives you some. When God really begins to stir your heart, stir your soul, and, and uh, you just, you, uh, uh, you know, I feel like I live there. 24-7, it seems. Pursuing, waiting. 
having an attentive ear and not demanding another sign. Wife and I tell each other from time to time, boy, I wish he would just write it in the sky. Don't you wish you would write it in the sky? I wish he would write it in the sky. You know what the problem with writing it in the sky? We might get it wrong anyway. I'm almost out of time, but I'm tempted to tell you the story of an old farmer, a young farmer, who felt that God called him into the ministry. He wanted to be a pastor, so he's out in the cornfield one day working. He looks up at the clouds, and he sees two clouds in a formation that says P.C. Not politically correct, but it says preach Christ. So he goes and he tells his pastor and he tells his family and he tells his mother and his father and the in-laws what he's experienced. And so the next Sunday, they allow, the little country church, they allow him to preach. So he gets up there and he, and he gives his sermon. Sermon is over. Church service is over. They're having the big Sunday dinner. Remember, this is out in the country. The in-laws are there and... He tells him again about his experience of seeing the two clouds with the PC. And the father-in-law says to him, son, I think when you looked up there and you saw that PC in the sky, it meant not preach Christ, but plant corn. See, that's the problem is sometimes we'll miss it. We'll miss it. But do we continue to pursue What are the works that we are to do to do the works of God? We are simply to believe. I, I love this because at the end of this chapter, you're going to see the answer to that question. I'm going to jump ahead. Jesus, in verse 67 of John chapter 6, he says to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got it. He got it. Confess Christ right there. Now, did he later deny Christ? Can I be a little bit? So what? He got it. Because Jesus will tell us later in the book of John that my father is greater than I and, 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 and no one can pluck you out of the father's hand. Not even your spiritual stupidity. Not even your lack of courage. He got it and he stayed in the game. He stayed. Jesus pursued him. I referred to it earlier. And, and to believe in Jesus, it really refers to this idea because the thing is what I, I, I have struggled with, folks. I remember I had a co-worker. I was on a construction site, and, and uh, let's just say a lot of things can happen on construction sites, all right? And... It, uh, I was at a guy I was working with, and I was trying to share with him, and, and, and he's been up for like four or five days. Guess why? But anyway, um, 
he's finally starting to, in a place where the Spirit is starting to speak to him. And he's like, well, man, I, you know, I prayed that prayer. It, he asked Christ into his heart, right? I prayed that prayer, right? And, and nothing changed, right? He's, and he's he, just totally bewildered and really at a, at a lack of understanding what was going on in his life but, and why he was in the condition that he was in. And I, during the Jesus movement, I saw a lot of people come to Christ. All right? But their desires changed. Remember when I talked about that earlier this morning? I'm almost done, by the way. Their desires changed. And they eventually followed Jesus no more. I saw a lot of people leave the faith. And I think at one time I must have been voted least likely to succeed as a Christian. Right? I, maybe I'm still getting voted that. I don't know. But there was that desire to continue to stay in. That desire to continue to press on. That desire, that steadfast, that's what this word belief means. That's what I'm trying to articulate to you. It means a steadfastness. It's this idea of abiding in Christ. It is a faith that abides in the word of God, that abides in the person of Jesus Christ. It means that we belong to him, that we abide in him, and then we are therefore dependent upon him. It's the steadfastness, like I said a second ago. Though none, it's old song, though none go with me, right? Still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. You guys all know the song, right? I'm going to ask Brian to come up and lead it. No, I'm kidding. But anyway. Um, That's what belief means. I met too many people, like the guy, co-worker. He believed, but he thought that just this mental understanding, this mental assent to the truth meant that he was in. By your fruits, by their fruits, excuse me, you will know them. And so we are simply to believe in him, abide in him, remain in him, cleave to him. I'll be honest with you. I don't know why he wants me hanging around. Of course, I think about some of you, and I don't know why he wants some of you hanging around either. But he does. He loves all of us that much. The grace that saved you. The grace that sanctifies you will be the grace that gets you home.